Okay, a little housekeeping before we begin here. Firstly, we are going to be taking a stab at tackling the life and ideology of a person we expect to be hearing about a lot in the coming decade, Mr. Sam Altman. Sam currently heads OpenAI and plans to use WorldCoin, a cryptocurrency, to save the world and help everyone after OpenAI takes all the jobs effectively. Sam's approach suggests an ideology akin to new optimism, a belief structure touted by many of today's ultra-wealthy that endorses the status quo and urges us to marvel at our progress over humanity's evolution. Due partly to the relevance of this ideology, and partly because money needs a break, he's tired, you and I are going to be embarking on a quiet, buzzy two-part series of short episodes where we first explore Enlightenment Now, the crowning achievement of Steven Pinker, a key player in the New Optimist movement. In the second episode, we will be diving briefly into human nature in general, what came before the Enlightenment period, and the naturally occurring human savagery that New Optimism seeks to protect us from. So on that note, let's get started with new optimism, the ideology of the very wealthy who seek to save us all from certain doom. We're going to briefly touch on the core tenets of new optimism, which are shared in the book Enlightenment Now, and then we are going to take a look at the data and see if there's more to it than we're being told. I'm going to start with a quick passage from the start of Enlightenment Now, which Pinker uses to epitomize the incredible progress we've made as a species. The educated Englishman from the 1600s believes witches can summon up storms that sink ships at sea. He believes in werewolves, although there happen to not be any in England, he knows they are to be found in Belgium. He believes Searsay really did turn Odysseus's crew into pigs. He believes mice are spontaneously generated in piles of straw. He believes in contemporary magicians. He's seen a unicorn's horn, but not a unicorn. He believes that a murdered body will bleed in the presence of the murderer. He believes that there is an ointment which, if rubbed on a dagger, which has caused a wound, will cure the wound. He believes that the shape, color, and texture of a plant can be a clue to how it will work as a medicine because God designed nature to be interpreted by mankind. He believes that it is possible to turn base metal into gold, although he doubts that anyone knows how to do it. He believes that nature abhors a vacuum. He believes the rainbow is a sign from God that comets portend evil. He believes that dreams predict the future if we know how to interpret them. And he believes, of course, that the earth stands still and the sun and stars turn around the earth once every 24 hours. Alas, Bill Gates notes this as one of his very favorites. The book credits and praises Enlightenment principles for much of our achievements dating back to their advent and urges the continued reliance on these principles going forward. While Pinker carries on defending Enlightenment principles, he also seeks to remind us that even though things are bad, they're going in the right direction. Look at where we are. That clever British fellow was probably caked in his own filth back then. Look at where we are now. Look at where poverty was. The population in absolute poverty, meaning the folks consuming $1.90 a day or less, has dropped massively because of the things we're doing. And the climate initiatives, they're so good now. More broadly, Pinker sets out to prove that even though everything feels terrible, 
the status quo is actually pretty chill. Human well-being has improved, and we're actually doing better than we ever have. To measure this progress, we need to stop relying on what we hear through the media and what we see around us and look at the quantitative data. He claims that doing so shows us where the suffering is greatest. It helps identify the measures that will reduce this suffering, and it reassures us that implementing those measures is not a waste of time. This is apparently a pretty naive understanding of quantitative data, which, as we'll see, often excludes just huge numbers of people. So let's test the theory that despite how it feels, everything is actually great. And let's begin by taking a look at these enlightenment principles. There are four big ones. Number one is reason. Now, enlightenment meant ditching the feelings and relying less on intuition and religious texts. Pinker sees religion and religious institutions as being pretty enlightenment-averse. Number two is science. These all feed into each other, just a heads up, spoiler alert, whatever. Pinker says we can disprove our beliefs when needed by applying the scientific method to those beliefs. Thus, science is needed to create reliable knowledge. Unsurprisingly, Pinker claims that anti-scientism is antithetical to scientific advancement. This is the belief that science is just myth-making and designed to undermine our institutions. Humanism is next in line, which effectively brings the concern of humanity back down to earth. What's going to help people here? Let's not worry about what happens after life or before it. Pinker proposes that this is the purest basis for a moral code, and that tribalism, or the focus on the many rather than the individual, runs counter to the benefits implicit to humanism. Lastly, we have progress. This, in Pinker's eyes, is striving to make changes in our laws and educational system rather than attempting to change human nature. He warns of the perils of declinism or the belief that we're headed for instability and ultimate collapse, and he supposes that this train of thought leads to pessimism and an anti-technology sentiment. In this book, Pinker hits us with a mountain of data supporting the idea implicitly and explicitly that everything is working as planned and the status quo needs little improvement. We're all good. Just look at the data. Look at these graphs. Okay, Steve, let's look at the graphs. Now, for most of humanity's history, we found ourselves in relative poverty. And according to Pinker's book, it was only through the rise of capitalism or the West or Enlightenment thinking that we were able to escape this. In his book, Pinker references a graph showing GDP for the last 2,000 years, where it's been basically flat until the late 1800s, and then it just shoots up. To quote Pinker, nothing, nothing, nothing. We repeat this for a few thousand years, and then boom. Um, this narrative is pretty crude. Another graph that Pinker uses shows that the percentage of the world living under $1.90 worth of consumption per day, we'll come back to this figure, which the World Bank describes as extreme poverty, has declined from 90% to 10% in the last 200 years. Now, both of these graphs use the same data source, which goes back 200 years. During this time, the rich countries were the only ones measuring, and they were colonizing many of the countries used for this data set. As such, there's a strong chance that GDP, among other metrics, were completely irrelevant to these 
quote unquote, participating populations 200 years ago. Further, colonists were only recording market consumption, choosing to ignore the non-capitalist means by which people survived. During the part where the data says people were in absolute poverty, in many cases, they were better off. They were getting their needs met via non-capitalist means. They were helping each other. This wasn't the story of a ton of people being saved by capitalism. Many of these people were losing literally everything while their country's GDP supposedly climbed. This also means the drop in poverty shown in the graph is inherently overstated. Now, from 1981 on, the data is better and represents a more credible drop in global poverty because it is actually gathered via sources measuring poverty. But this data is still flawed. Many poor countries have only supplied the World Bank with a single year of poverty data. Further, as the economist Angus Deaton notes, measuring poverty is extremely complicated. You have to look at currency conversion, the way we measure inflation and the percentage of income spent on essential goods, differing prices for goods in different regions, meaning that a peso is worth more than the amount it literally converts to in U.S. dollars. The list goes on and on and on. And changing the metrics of how we measure poverty even slightly can recategorize hundreds of millions more as being below that line of poverty that $1.90 consumption figure, which is in itself weird. In fact, let's let's talk about $1.90 daily consumption, meaning that these people are consuming $1.90 worth of goods each day. This number comes from basically nowhere. Statistically speaking, no one is living any longer or is any happier when their daily consumption climbs from $1.90 to $1.95 or $2.15. So why does that number mean anything? Well, as it turns out, this number came from lousy data. And if we're using it as a threshold for poverty, according to the anthropologist Jason Hickel, there are more people starving than people below this poverty line. Hickel counters Pinker and the World Bank, saying instead the daily consumption of $7.40 is a more utilitarian poverty line. He uses life expectancy data to identify this as the point where a person begins meeting the very most basic requirements for decent health and, crucially, stops starving to fucking death. At $7.40, life expectancy concludes a steep spike and begins leveling out at 74 years. That means the pennies leading up to $7.40 of daily consumption all make a huge difference. And the pennies after $7.40 aren't doing as much heavy lifting on the keeping people alive front. Now, when we use this $7.40 figure, a funny thing happens. Although we still see a drop in the proportion of impoverished people, which is a good thing, the absolute number of impoverished people actually climbs. And Pinker hates this point, and he fumbles all over it when it's posed as a question in interviews. He stumbles all over himself, saying that the absolute number climbs because population climbs. You add a billion people, and there are going to be more poor people. But crucially, in his book, he also relies on absolute population numbers. Another crucial consideration here is that the country with the most progress scaling higher poverty lines is China. 
And China is not following the core tenets of enlightenment thinking, according to Pinker. In fact, China has resisted most of the globalist free market behavior that Pinker espouses as being critical to our movement out of poverty. And if we use the $7.40 figure for daily consumption and we remove China from our data set, we see the proportion of impoverished people basically stagnate. That's not good. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because Pinker is using this data to sing the praises of the free market, Western capitalism, and individualist thinking rather than tribalism. And China's incredible quality of life improvements cannot be adequately attributed to any of these principles. Distribution of wealth is the second point of contention our sources highlight as a unique weak point in enlightenment now. Pinker cherry picks a few points from books he disagrees with and cites a few contested studies to support his belief that GDP alone is the real indicator of happiness. In fact, he states that GDP growth is probably understating human happiness because of all of the innovation we've seen. We have microwaves now and refrigerators. That makes a difference. To Pinker, inequality isn't worth considering in the measurement of happiness, which is a point that even Jordan will see who cancels who. Peterson disagrees with, expressing instead that in low-income areas with egalitarian wealth distribution, male-on-male violent crime rates are relatively low. To see real bloodshed, one should take a look at the communities, rich or poor, with substantial inequality. Pinker talks a mean game about the technological advances humanity has made, but regardless of whether or not people have microwaves, real happiness often hinges on one's interactions with the community around them. Plenty of studies can back up the fact that meaningfully participating in a community with a given level of wealth requires access to a certain portion of that wealth. Enough when discussing money is not a historical term, it's a social one. It'll come as a surprise to no one that Pinker doesn't spend a ton of time discussing the causes of inequality and largely tributes said inequality to mysterious market changes and globalization. But our sources indicate that the usual suspects are to blame, as always. Diluted labor rights via wage theft, lower minimum wages as a result of inflation, and subcontracting, the advent of subcontracting is a major factor in our economy. Lacks antitrust, various corporate-friendly legal changes like those relating to non-compete agreements, etc., etc. When Pinker does delve into the matter of inequality, it's to endorse social spending, which is good, but also to contemplate the cures for inequality, which he calls the four horsemen, war, epidemics, state collapse, and revolutions. He deems these as problematic and explains further that the ends don't justify the means, and thus an end to inequality shouldn't necessarily be prioritized. He later admits that transfers and taxes on the rich can also play a role in reducing inequality. So maybe, Steve, maybe we just skip the horseman stuff and just make billionaires pay taxes. To this end, Pinker is exactly what folks like Bill Gates want in a public figure. Bill Gates and wealthy Americans, the top 10%, are who this book is for. When you move beyond trying to suss what the words mean on the pages of Pinker's incredibly dense books, you can begin to synthesize what the words are there to do. Pinker is a Harvard man. When I read his books, my comprehension drops to zero, as I suspect it does for many, but I get the gist. There's a voice in my head going, Rad Bill, you hot, sexy man, you. 
we don't have the attention span to read this, but clearly this person knows more than you. And they are saying that despite all of your worrying, everything's fine. That is what Pinker is here for. He is here to beg us to stay the course and trust all the scary new technology. Enlightenment now is here to point out the rainbow enchanting the horizon. We have healthier diets, better social safety practices, some fairly tangible progress on climate preservation, and rising IQ scores, which the fact that a Harvard psychologist turned sociologist is referencing IQ is almost unbelievable, but he somewhat tellingly glosses over the crux of what seems to be making us all miserable. Even though unemployment is low, social mobility is virtually gone unless you fork up the still exploding cost to obtain a degree, and even still, social mobility is a challenge. Wages are stagnating, and the cars that we all need to get to work are now absurdly expensive to buy, run, and maintain, and the used car market is setting records left and right. The cost of being a child and dying has been increasing rapidly, and the health care we all deserve for the parts in between is a fantasy. If you're sticking to Pinker's rules of enlightenment, what I'm doing right now is arguing for tribalism instead of humanism or individuality and spouting declinist principles, both antithetical to the enlightenment thinking and the movement in which Pinker plays a leading role, new optimism. But as one of my sources, a two-hour unlearning economics video on this very subject astutely highlights Saying that this is as good as it gets is not optimism, and the folks criticizing the system are not declinists. The people critiquing a system are doing so because they believe it can get better. That is optimism. If you follow Pinker's rainbow to the end, you'll find a paradise, but there isn't room for you, and there isn't room for me. There's only enough space for Pinker, Bill Gates, and his buddies, and there's an open seat where Jeffrey Epstein would be sitting... They were pretty close, actually. It's it's fucking weird. In conclusion, there's always room for improvement, and anyone who tells you otherwise is not an optimist. Pinker says that we're on an excellent trajectory, but he relies on shaky data that he's unable to defend to reach this conclusion. In terms of the proportion of people actually reaching self-sustainability over the last 40 years using Enlightenment principles... We haven't seen much of an improvement at all, and despite Pinker's claims, GDP alone is not a direct indicator of happiness. For people to enjoy the fruits of their country's economic strength, they actually need to be getting some portion of that wealth. Inequality is a massive issue today. I would argue it's among the very most serious issues facing our country and our species as a whole. We are all necessary pieces of our society and of our economy, and growing inequality means that as more wealth is circulating, it's going to the people who already have it instead of those who need it. Many of those who need it, by the way, being just as critical, if not more critical to the system they support, and that is not a system that is working. That is a system that is failing. In our next episode, we'll dive into what humanity looked like before our current system took hold and what humanity has done in the brief moments throughout our history when our current system and civilized society at large fell away. In exploring this, we will also briefly be touching on what those who benefit from the status quo are willing to do to bring it 
back and to preserve the status quo and civil society? And what happens when they decide it's time for the status quo to end? Thanks so much for joining us. If you like what we do, please consider subscribing. If you have questions, comments, or episode ideas, drop us a note at profitversepeeps at gmail.com or feel free to post on our subreddit. I'm Rad Bill, and Money Mike will be back soon, and goodbye.